Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Magazine. Join me, Osman Ahmed, ID's Fashion Features Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. Sky Brown is about to drop. X Games winner could be the youngest ever Olympic gold medalist. Skateboarding in 2021. It's an Olympic sport now, and we're a long way from Dogtown. Sky Brown dropping in with a 360. She goes! 5-4 to finish! So what's the scores on the doors? Is it good enough for a medal? Third place for Sky Brown. The sky is literally the limit for this teenage Olympic medal winner. Contests, magazine covers and marketing contracts, the road is paved with gold for talented young skaters. But this wasn't always the case. Now, after half a century on the margins, skateboarding has gone fully mainstream. And the biggest brands in skateboarding, Stussy, Palace and Supreme, are some of the most sought-after fashion labels. But despite the dollar signs, skating remains defiantly different to other sports on the Olympic roster. Its appeal transcends, yet also relies on a countercultural cachet formed from its outsider roots. So how, if at all, has skateboarding managed to keep its edge? Skate is important, I think, for culture. Skateboarding is countercultural. You know, it's all small communities and people that are interacting with each other. And I was like, oh no, I gotta be a part of this somehow. What Slam City did for all of us at that time is that there was no blueprint on how to do things. We made our own blueprint. The skate scene is embedded in what it means to make clothes and launch brands. I'm Tyshawn Jones. I'm just me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Supreme was a skate shop and I was like, this is special. Different backgrounds and different races and people who are 30 or 15 all hanging out with each other because they love to skate. It was very personal. It was very you. So it was like whatever you were wearing, that's how you came to the park. That's what it was. That's exactly what a skate shop's for everywhere anyways, you know? It's just a place to go, like, and and kick it and learn about skating and, like, have your own little, like, click, you know? Through the years, skateboarding has come in and out of style, each time coming back with a new look built on raw attitude. It all began in the 1950s, with Californian surfers finding something to do when the waves were low. From the 1960s, as chronicled in blockbuster documentaries like Dogtown and Z-Boys, it had become a magnet for kids and dropouts with something to prove. It turns out that despite skate's mainstream presence today, from the Olympic podium to the lines at Supreme, that ethos still holds. Writer Naomi Akadi chronicles sports culture, and here she picks up the story. One thing that really sets skateboarding apart, I think, is the fact that it comes from the streets, born from youth culture in California back in the 40s and, and 50s, when 
the world was going through a really big time of turmoil post World War II, but um, that's when it started developing. And it was like after these times of uncertainty and turmoil, there's always like some people that are like, okay, now it's our time to kind of break free off the shackles of like tradition and build our own space in the world and society and culture. And it's developed into kind of like emerging as a glue of the youth across the world. The last decade has really seen skateboarding coming to the front of what popular culture is because probably social media and definitely like I feel like more niche subcultures and movements have been able to become like a mainstream phenomenon because of you know, the internet, obviously. And I think like personally, the breaking point was the early 2010s when like Supreme Unfair Facts, uh, unfortunately now they closed down the shop, um, it became a point of uh, encounter for the youth and the the musicians and like all of the people that were, they would go on to become like cultural uh, pioneers. And it has to do also with the wider like deformalization, if so we want to call it, of fashion and like up until 2010s, people were still required to go to to work in a suit or like in you know formal wear and then from then on it kind of just like became okay to go to wear sneakers and to wear jeans to meetings and stuff like that and I feel like it was a sort of cosmic planet alignment I guess that there was a cultural like shift in both music art design fashion and how society operated at large and there was this resurgence of streetwear happening out of LA but it was really a a global connection Yeah, I mean, Supreme was a, you know, it started as a skate shop and and it was a very tight-knit group of friends that like worked there and hung out around it for years, you know. That's exactly what a skate shop's for everywhere anyways, you know. It's just a place to go like and and kick it and learn about skating and like have your own little like click, you know. Bill Strobeck is a filmmaker and photographer known for his legendary skate videos for Supreme. He knows that even this billion-dollar global brand rides or dies by its roots in community. I think as time has gone on, I mean, the way that life is, things can be seen all over the world that were just like something that was just like on a block by itself for years. Mm -hmm. I mean, the push was there, you know what I mean? As far as like the stuff that we've been able to do for it has been very glowing in their, their push to get to a bigger level. Strobeck's films feature not only the skating of new stars like Ty Sean Jones and Sean Pablo, but carry an aesthetic that even in the visually raw genre of skate videos have seen him labeled as skateboarding's auteur director. I, you know, I grew up on the Upper East Coast, so it was very far from where it started. You know, late 80s to, you know, early to mid 90s, it was very outcast. You are stepping outside of your boundaries with like the kids in your school and like Mm -hmm. kids hated skateboarders because they were just, you know what I mean? Like if you were a skateboarder and they want to fight you. As Bill attests, three decades ago, skateboarding was still an outsider's pastime. Films then were distributed on VHS, either mail order or from the one skate shop in your area, if you were lucky to even have one. 
This exclusivity built smaller, self-supporting communities. But crucially, this enabled experimentation and creativity. Sophia Pantera, founder and creative director of Aries, started her career designing for the now legendary London skate shop, Slam City Skates, remembers their attitude at the time. Uh, so it was really, really fun, like bit dysfunctional, I hope they don't mind me saying. It was really successful, very, very quickly. I don't know if anyone knows, but it was part of Rough Trade Records at the time when I joined. There was a sort of serendipity to what happened, you know, culturally became super, super relevant. Uh, there was a lot of music and Rough Trade was having all those concerts. So it was really exciting. You know, you'd be in the office and yeah, you know, the Beastie Boys would come in or I still remember Edward from ID, um, Edward Anifor, he used to come in all the time. It was just a really quite magic moment where people didn't realize we were kind of, you know, what, what we were doing. It was like a game, but it was really fun. And creatively, I think what Slam City did for all of us at that time is that there was no uh, blueprint on how to do things. There was like no template for it. There was, you know, we, we saw what was happening in America with magazines like Big Brother, you know, and I, I think there was a sort of crossover more in the UK than, than, in, uh, than in America of real fashion interest, you know, from subcultural magazines like ID uh, into uh, skateboarding as a subculture, which had never really happened before. Back in the 90s, Slam City's chaotic Covent Garden store became a pilgrimage for skaters visiting London to ride classic skate spots like the South Bank. Then in the decade that follows, just as in California, the birthplace of skateboarding, innovative digital companies began to set up shop in London. This tech explosion of the new millennium let fans log on to their passion 24-7. In the 2020s, there may be nostalgia for the good old days, but today's accessibility brings its own benefits. Yeah, of course. That was just beautiful. You know, you had to go out, you had to, to meet people. But I think it's quite the same as now as well, but... It's just a different way of curating it, I would say. G. Schmidt is co-founder of Amsterdam-based label Pata. The brand started off in the nascent sneaker resale market and is now a global streetwear mega brand. The turning point is definitely the internet, you know? Like, we, of course, are original resellers, actually. You know, like, we did grey market sneaker selling, you know? Um, with the internet, everything changed, you know? Like, now you could buy just whatever you wanted and you know and actually the big corporations and the bigger brands also by default then also stopped with having different models in different territories because people would just buy it online and just it just got shipped then you also on that so you had that practical side then you also have now the information you know like first you had slamix hype and then you had hype beast you know so there's two entities uh, High Beast is still around. It's, it's super big. Then you got High Snobiety, which are just really big pages with all this information of everything that comes out every minute, you know? So now everybody also knows everything. So you, now you don't really necessarily have to travel all the time to actually get to the news or or, or find new things, you know? It's, it's on you, like, if you open up your laptop... So in this ultra-connected, super-crowded spot, how did skateboard fashion go from social outcasts to a global wardrobe staple? 
Partly, it's the canny way brands like Pata operate. Rare, limited edition pieces and brand collaborations keep the brands fresh all year round. Sound familiar? It's a formula that has been replicated across every echelon of the fashion industry today. But what really is skate style? As Naomi Akati describes, the look has often been set by a handful of cult labels. Yeah, I guess like the overall like quintessential look of the skateboarder is, you know, baggy clothes just because they need to be comfortable and skating in their movements. Um, it depends where you go. I guess like the brands vary, but the staple brands have always been like Supreme, Stussy, Diamond, The Hundreds, if you're more on the West Coast. Um, and then more recently, of course, like the brands like Palace. Um, out of Europe and the UK, but then there is also like Carhartt that is also like very much worn, bands for shoes, of course, Converse. And then I remember when I was growing up, Billabong, Bastard was another one really famous in Italy specifically also. There are so many. Even before the internet connected culture all over the world, many of these brands had become so ubiquitous that non-skaters began picking them up. Streetwear staples like DC began by catering to the hardcore, but soon crossed over to the high street. For G. Schmidt, style has always been an elusive thing to capture. Well, you know what? When I think about streetwear, it's the, the, the wear of every day, you know? So it can actually be everything for everyone, you know what I mean? So, like, you know, like, how is somebody a style or not, you know? Like, it's just like you can have exactly the same wardrobe and... The one person can still look better than the other just because by their personal taste, by curation, and by the way you do things, you know? So I think in that sense, uh, there will always be a differentiation. So with so many people able to access these brands, what's key to drawing people around a style or culture? For skating, it always goes back to a sense of rawness, the desire to redefine the city as a playground, which drives those who pick up a board and hustle into the unknown. Here's Bill Strobeck again, who was there back when things were pretty gnarly. I don't really think there's a certain look, but I don't know. It's probably like dabbles a bit in like old punk and stuff like that. I mean, it's come from so many different things. I mean, I don't know, like it's all changed. I don't know. From my point of view, you know, it's like, it's just teenage bleached hair, like earrings and nose rings and like that. That's what I grew up with it. You know what I mean? But like kids nowadays, like it's not like that. You know what I mean? When we were younger, we were like super broke. It was like shopping at thrift stores and like, you know, we would go to Payless and get like the bootleg vans that were there. They looked just like vans, but they were just like the cheaper version of like, a, they were the same thing, but they just didn't say vans. We would just yeah. do what we could to get by, you know what I mean? Like, And I think from my experience, not having a father and my mother being sick and like just having my grandmother, like it was my way of like, like trying to figure out who I was, I think, you know, without ha having that like specific person to be like, oh, I'm like this because of this, because I just didn't have that, you know? In the end, Skate's progress is a classic history of evolution. The surfers slid their way out of the water and found out how to thrive on land before an explosion of individuality among the billions of us working it out as we go along. In this mix lies the tension that drives progression.
here's Naomi Akati again. Why I think it's essentially impossible nowadays to have something um, that is a niche underground movement and for it to stay that way. And so I think it kind of gives the opportunity to to these people that have been making these, you know, waves and like uh, creating their the space for themselves. It gives them the opportunity to kind of like be recognized for what they are able to do and open opportunities for them to become part of the conversation or like be the drivers of the conversation. And I know that like, again, there are some people that are like, okay, I don't want their like fashion or like the mainstream is just diluting what our message is. But there are people on the other side that are like, okay, you know what, like recognize that we can't really stop this thing from happening because the, as I said, the gates are open now. So why don't we make use of it and use it to our advantage? Because I feel like the one thing that is very important in skate culture, like street culture was community, has always been community. Like skaters are like brothers through the sport. And so I feel like, like there is a big chunk of them or like of this community that are like, we are interested in sharing what we know and like how we live with the people. But of course you need to be authentically interested in what we're doing and how we're doing it. If you want to bring it to a wider audience. And again, there is no going back. I think like now we're living in a, in an era that is where everything is super, you know, fast and accelerated, and there is no way of going back. Join us after the break to hear from the people pushing skateboarding in new directions. Welcome back. In part one, we heard how skateboarding found its way to the mainstream. But what's changed now that it's there? Like I said at the beginning, we've come a long way from Dogtown. One thing that's clear is that skateboarding has made more room for all comers. For many decades, the sport was heavily male-dominated. Earlier, we heard how Sky Brown became a star after winning an Olympic medal at age 14. Here she is, speaking with skateboard legend Tony Hawk after her win. I don't know, I just feel like I have a responsibility to keep on pushing boundaries to show girls that you can do it. Like, I feel like girls think that I'm a girl so I can't do it, but I want them to think that I'm a girl so I can do it. And that's why... Skating was on its way out of being cool, and to add to that, to be a girl in skateboarding was even harder because you were competing against literally hundreds of boys, and I remember exactly three girls in the competition series that I was in, but I admired them greatly because they were standing up against all odds. Fast forward to uh, the present. We've come a long way in terms of empowering uh, girls and, and women in skateboarding. One turning point in the opening up of new boundaries, or perhaps an indicator of the shift that's been happening, was the 2018 indie film Skate Kitchen, in which a real-life group of young women skaters starred as fictionalised versions of themselves in their own story, 
after meeting director Crystal Mazzell on the New York subway. Skate Kitchen star Dee Dee Lovelace says that the going hasn't always been smooth. It was challenging. It was scary. In the beginning, it just wasn't welcoming. So I just sat by myself or I did my own thing and learned on my own and watched from afar. But I'm not mad at my experience because I feel as though somebody said something to me recently. They were like, if there's no rain, something about the desert being dry. I don't know. It's basically about balance. Like if like joy wouldn't feel good if it wasn't for pain kind of thing. You know, so I'm I'm grateful for my experience because it made me appreciate it even more down the line, even though it sucked in the beginning. <laughs> Once Sudi and friends founded Skate Kitchen, their unique style and social media presence meant it wasn't long before they were breaking free of those early challenges and forging their own path. As we went on and as Skate Kitchen became what it was, it was very interesting how it became full circle. So a bunch of skaters would started recognizing it. Also, we would get a bunch of DMs from girls around the country and girls around the world saying, oh, we, I really appreciate, you know, your videos and what you guys are doing. And then bigger people started reaching out, people, noticing us like Pharrell and Tony Hawk, Jaden Smith. Yeah, so it, it was really great. We were just having fun. <laughs> Sartorially speaking, boundaries are being broken down in the world of skateboarding too. Sophia Prantera launched Aries in 2010 with Palace logo designer Fergus Purcell. Despite her own positive experiences within the scene, an awareness of gender discrimination in clothing led to adopting a unisex design ethos. So yeah, I worked with only boys. I never felt like I was not part of the team. But I think in you know, in looking back and with what we know now, I think, you know, there was always a bit of discrimination going on, but I think it's cultural, you know, it's just embedded. And I, I sometimes think maybe my career would have been different had I been a boy. I think maybe now people are, you know, understanding that I had a role then in this subculture that maybe wasn't so obvious at the time. And then when I started Aries, you know, and it was with Ferg at the time, uh, we started looking at the t-shirts. We were both wearing, you know, the same clothes. So I was like, you know, what's the point of doing two lines here, you know, when we're wearing the same clothes? But still, you know, it's difficult. I think the idea of like, you know, people are quite conservative. Or like even, you know, when you when they're buying online, you know, they you get a lot of questions just saying, does that fit men? I remember going into this like um, outerwear store, to buy, and this probably was about the time when I was starting Aries, to buy uh, some, uh, I really love going snowboarding, so I buy some clothes to go snowboarding in. And I went into men's department and the guy was like looking at me and he went, but you're in the wrong department. And I was like, well, no, I prefer the way, you know, I'll just prefer the way this fits. And he was like, no, but you know, you should buy the women's one because they're designed, they're ergonomic for women. And I was like, well, you're telling me that back darts are actually going to help my performance, <laughs> you know, because that's kind of how the, you know, how it was cut, you know, it was like, and, you know, it's just like it's sort of slightly fitted jacket is going to help my performance. I doubt it. 
But the reality is that men and women do wear the same clothes, you know, and do have really similar bodies. And then when I started Aries, you know, I felt that I really wanted to go back to the sensibility of the 90s or wear, you know, or baggy t-shirts, baggy clothes. The genderless, culturally conscious atmosphere is perhaps what's helping skateboarding maintain its radical roots in the 2020s. It's not necessarily about the tricks, the contests, or the labels. It's about acceptance. There has been a lot of progress made. It's way more accepting, um, even in terms of like the queer community as well. That has grown and progressed tremendously. There's, there's still efforts that need to be made, of course, but it's, it's, it's moving there. And those people are being seen and heard and accepted. And honestly, people, people in skateboarding don't care like how you identify, what you do. Like, I think that's like the essence of it. That's, that's why people like it so much. That's why people are fascinated with it so much. That's why it's what it is. It's because it was never about what you're wearing. It was never about where you came from, what your parents do, what you identify as. It was like, do you enjoy skateboarding? Are you here to have a good time? Are you here to get some tricks off? And that's what it is. You know, that, that, that's what's so great about it, is that you can just go and be yourself or be whoever you wanted to be. And just skate. And you know what? It turns out this hands-off, laid-back authenticity can be good for business too. G. Schmidt and Pater are making it work with considered choices. Yeah, well, you know what the thing is? The importance is more what the brand and the people that are really connected to the brand do with it, you know? Like, we're living in a capitalistic world, you know? Like, you have stuff and you sell it. And they are very popular, so people come and buy it, you know. But that doesn't really say that much about the inner workings of, for instance, Supreme or Pata or Stussy or Union or whoever, because most likely they will have their own community with people that uh, dictate and influence and everything around that, you know. So I would say it's more about the responsibility and with the things that we do, how important is it for, say, for us, Pata, to tell something about our background, who we are as a people, um, what do we do with the importance of what music is to us, our backbone? What do we do with the importance of making sure that we are a platform for new artists to spread their wings? You know, What are we doing to make sure that black culture is not only perceived as something that is uh, about materialistic things, but that is actually about heritage and that it's about pride and it's about all these other things about each one teach one, you know, and being proud, like, you know, what is the importance of, of, of sports? You know, all these type of things, I think the differentiation between whatever brand does it for whatever reasons is right in that essence, you know? So by default, that's also our right of existence. And that's also our point of differentiation because the way we do it, it's way different than any other brand. You know, I think that's the importance of who we are as Pata, you know? Over at Supreme, it's still on the streets where the stories are told. 
according to Bill Strobeck, that's the secret to the success of his Supreme films, which in the end became as much about the lives of the kids he met at the store as the big-name pros you'd expect from a skatewear giant. Supreme in the 90s was that. Like, it was literally, like, you know, a group of heads, and they would hang out at the shop and kind of run the shop and go down to the Brooklyn Banks and skate. And it was just this crew of friends. I mean, aesthetically, that's what happened when I got involved. And, like, at the time, uh, I met a group of kids on the way, you know. There was a kid that was coming up, and his name was uh, Tyshawn Jones, and he was 13 years old. And I started not going out with big pros and just going out with them most of the time because I felt like this is exactly why I started skating, what's happening here with these guys. You know what I mean? It's like they, they're, mm-hmm. like, just starting, and, like, they have, like, I just wanted to present them all to the world, and, and really that's what mm-hmm. happened, you know? And, like... You know, we we mashed it all together and it just it was too vibrant. I just felt like it just it just it just hit like, you know, and that's where that landed. And then, you know, from there on, now they had a crew of kids that would literally promote their brand for the next, you know, 10 years straight. <laughs> and that kid, Ty Sean, he's now a two time Thrasher magazine skater of the year team rider at Supreme and Adidas, amongst others, and a star of countless videos and adverts. He's even been on the cover of ID twice. What does he make of it all, and what keeps him going? I'm Tyshawn Jones. I'm just me. (laughs) I think it definitely got bigger as a whole and is way more mainstream now, especially with it being in the Olympics and stuff like that. But I think that's cool. I think... You know, it'll be cool for more people to get involved with skating and look at it as something that they can do instead of just like a weird sport or like something that was different. You know, like back in the day when I was doing it, like that was considered like a white boy sport or whatever. So now that there's these examples of like, no, this is a real thing. I think personally that that's cool. I mean, what do you think about how skating has changed in the last 10 years and how the audience for skating and skate brands has changed with it. I mean, I think it's cool that people like skate brands and stuff and it gives the brand visibility and, you know, I think it's good that skateboard companies could do well so that the skateboards could do well so we could continue to do what we like to do and, you know, and and being able to skate and provide for ourselves. But, you know, some people think other ways about it. Some people don't like it. But who really cares? Like, in my eyes, it's just someone wants to wear some, let them wear it. And who are the skaters that you find inspiring to either be with or by watching? And who are the kind of people coming up at the moment that, that you're really into? I just like my friends, honestly. Like, anybody who is my friends who's doing anything cool, I support them. I don't really look at too much of what's going on you know being in the industry i feel like that changes sometimes when you get in it so i'm not really keeping up with every single thing going on but i just more watch my friends who do it like i like they don't have to be pro they don't have to be you know the best skateboarder in the world but i resonate with them because they're my friends so 
it was interesting at a young age to get out and see, you know, people who are 30 or 15 all hanging out with each other because they love to skate. So that was just the scene for me. And that's how I came into it and seen it growing up. And I don't really care about just pros or, you know, stuff like that. That's more of like the professional side of it. I'm, I'm, I like to look at it more of it's still just like a fun thing that I'm doing with my friends, but I happen to be pro. From the seaside boulevards of California to the concrete jungle of New York and cities worldwide, without community, without these kids proving a point, going at it on their own, there are no labels, no Olympic medals, there is no billion-dollar skatewear industry. It's just you and your friends out there skating. Let's leave it with Dee Dee Lovelace. What I get from skateboarding is so rewarding. It's a love-hate relationship. It is not easy. It is very annoying, actually, sometimes. But the the work that you put in because you know what you can achieve and what you know you know what it could be is so rewarding when you reach it that you just keep going. And oh my gosh, I've had some of the most thrilling moments skating in New York City. Just because you can ride throughout all of the boroughs. And I would do that from like 2 p.m. to like 12 a.m. in the morning with a bunch of these guys from lower Manhattan. We would just be outside all night, just riding like in and out of traffic and going up to Midtown or Brooklyn. And it was, it's just so fun. It was so fun. So fun. (laughs) Identity was written and presented by Osman Ahmed with research and additional writing by Ailey Duffy. Production assistance by Amelia Phillips, Marta Abramaitite and Sean Griffiths. And art by Callum Glenday and Alexandra Talarcha. The audio producer was me, Robin Lieburn, and Identity is produced by Podmasters for Vice Media.